you know, building a business isn't sexy, you know, and what I mean by a, a business is, you know, it's profitable. You're not focused on investors. You're really focused on creating something that's sustainable. You own the majority of it. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Andrew Gazdecki, has previously sold two SaaS companies and is now on his third business, which is a marketplace called MicroAcquire, where he brings buyers and sellers of small software companies together to facilitate those transactions. He has learned a lot from those previous acquisitions and from building the company to more than a quarter million in annual recurring revenue in its first year in existence. We talk about all that, how he got buyers on the platform, the opportunity he saw when founding it, and the lessons he's taken from building a past company to over 10 million in revenue and 100 employees. I learned a ton. I am confident that you will as well. Here is Andrew Gazdecki. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Andrew, welcome on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So I want to start off with the company that you're working on now, and then we can kind of talk about how you got into such an interesting business. But I was, I, you know, I signed up to be a member of MicroAcquire and I've just kind of been getting more into the different documents that you've created of like, you know, the how-tos of buying these small companies and uh, just how easy it is to, to kind of sort through and, and consume everything. But maybe as a starting point, like to build a platform that more or less anyone could go and acquire a business, buy a business, where did that idea come from? And what, what gap did you see in the market that otherwise wasn't being occupied? Yeah, definitely. Good question. So before I started MicroCar, I was actually looking to buy a SaaS company myself. And so this was after I had sold my second company. I didn't want to start from the beginning. I felt my strengths are, you know, in sales, marketing, branding, that sort of, that's what I enjoy doing the most. Um, I love the, you know, zero to one, um, you know, taking something from nothing and building it into something like I did with my group wire. Um, but yeah, I was looking to buy a SaaS company and I kind of looked around at, you know, the typical spots in the space and there was nothing specific to SaaS. There was nothing that specifically, you know, put founders first. I think that's one thing that I try to do at MicroQuire. And honestly, I didn't think it was going to work too. So that's probably another thing to add. I, I keep a journal and um, before I launched it, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work, but it looks really cool. So if it doesn't like whatever, but yeah, I just was scratching a personal itch. I just thought, you know, selling a company is such a confusing thing for founders. No one really talks about it. It's all this gated information, you know, for buyers and brokers to explain to you. Um, You know, it's just confusing. And so I thought, you know, there's all these middlemen in the marketplace taking huge commissions. And anytime there's a middleman in a market, that's a market waiting to be disrupted. So if you wear a suit and you're taking commission, connecting two people, uh, someone is probably going to figure out a way to make that more efficient. So long story short, just, you know, scratching a personal itch. I saw it has a fun way to work with startups. I love working with entrepreneurs and uh, yeah, just kind of launched it. And, uh, I, you know, I'm pretty surprised at um, the response. 
Yeah, I, we can talk. I mean, one year in, you're already over two hundred forty thousand in annual revenue. But the the thing that I want to hone in on there because the the middleman idea, the you know, just kind of confusing nature of something like this. The internet in certain ways has come for, and software has come for all of these illegible purchases. And you think about the stuff that's on the later end of that transaction. It is the stuff that, you know, fewer and fewer people even have the likelihood or the consideration to do. And the type of transactions that people are doing infrequently in their lives. Like it was very quick to buy, you know, uh, books or bubble gum or easy transactions on the internet because of the fact that people do it with regularity. You can kind of quickly iterate on actually buying it that way sucked. I'll try a different way the next time. But something like buying a business doesn't happen that often, right? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're a private equity firm, some firms are buying, you know, two to three companies a month. But for the average person, no, like four or five years ago. So I started a company called Business Apps when I was in college. And you know, at that time, when you thought of acquisitions, you thought of like Facebook and Google, like that, that's who acquired companies. But I think what we're seeing now is this new trend of people realizing that, you know, buying a business with existing customers is almost like a new form of entrepreneurship. Um, and I think that trend's just going to continue. And I think that's been, you know, helpful for microquires growth, but yeah, I think, you know, there's just been a lot of people sharing, you know, really awesome success stories of, hey, I bought a few companies and look how well I'm doing. And that fascinates people because they're not Google, they're not Apple, they're just regular people. And they're building these, you know, empires full of, you know, interesting companies. So I hope that answers your question. But yeah, it's fascinating to me just at the types of people that are now buying companies compared to, you know, what you'd see like four or five years ago when it was just, Mark Zuckerberg buying Instagram or something like that. Now it's, you know, a VP of sales at a company and he wants to own or she wants to own 100% of the company instead of a tenth of 1% at best over four years or something like that. So um, it's definitely, you know, I think it's going to be interesting this year over the next few years, but I'm confident saying acquisitions are just going to become more and more common, whether you're, you know, thinking about starting a business that's a viable route by a business and, have something in place to, to start off and grow with, or just strategic companies as well, looking to bolt on other services that they can sell to their companies. And then people starting, you know, different private equity funds. Um, I've never seen so much action in that space. So yeah, it's just interesting all around. There's just a lot of activity. So can you talk a little bit about the business model that you play as the marketplace? And, and also, you know, the name's microacquire. It kind of suggests that there's some sort of upper threshold or limit to the size of a, a business that would be transacted on your platform. Can you talk about those two? Yeah, definitely. So the original thesis of the business was typical private equity looks for businesses, usually 10 million and above. A and that's like um, a financial buyer. And then you have strategic acquirers that would be, you know, again, Google, I'm going to throw in some other names, Tesla, uh, HubSpot, um, you know, those are strategic acquirers and they typically want, not all the time, but they do want to see some sort of scale. So like 5 million in revenue. And so what I saw as a void in the market was, you know, companies below that revenue threshold don't have a lot of optionality in terms of extra strategy or meeting buyers quickly without going through this whole process that might not even work out. And then if it does, they got to pay this commission. Um, so that was um, 
you know, kind of the, the initial thought of framing it, you know, micro is, you know, there's just a lot of businesses where if you're an investment banker, it's just as much work to do, you know, 20, 40, $50 million transaction than it is to do, you know, one or $2 million transaction. And in terms of how I'm currently making money with MicroQuire, so I just have a premium subscription for buyers. It allows them to actually contact the sellers. So it's completely free for founders, no commissions, uh, no exclusivity clauses or anything. You can list your startup, meet buyers. If you sell, great. If you don't and you want to keep growing it, that's awesome. Really just putting sellers and founders and entrepreneurs in a position with buyers to have a little bit more control. And the funny part about that business model that I want to add is um, I didn't originally think it was going to be that I wanted the marketplace to just, you know, I built it as like a free resource for bootstrapping entrepreneurs and companies kind of below that, you know, 5 million revenue threshold. But then I post startups on microquire and like a hundred people would request information and the original idea for MicroQuire was to have this like super vetted marketplace where every buyer I manually approve, um, every startup I still manually approve. So I look at the profile, I speak with the founder, I gather as much information as I can to, you know, and then I'll make the profiles look good and that sort of stuff. Um, but then thousands of people started signing up and I was clicking approve manually, just taking up all my day. And I said, okay, this thing has kind of gotten out of control. So then... Um, I, I basically am like reverse verifying buyers, if that makes sense. So it, it kind of just, you know, solved a pain point in the marketplace where founders were just being hounded by too many people and they didn't know who to focus on. And so the premium buyer program that I rolled out, which is just a small, you know, subscription, um, helps founders focus on less conversations, but with more serious buyers. And it kind of also, you know, I imagine the reason people were getting hounded with those offers is seeing like that kind of snapshot of a business like they, like you can do just by signing up like I did. It, it's like this very fun version of window shopping, the same way you might walk down the street and be like, oh, imagine if we bought that car or imagine if I bought that, what, you know, whatever piece of apparel or clothing. It's for a certain type of mind that is interested in acquiring these type of businesses. You could just spend the time scrolling through all that stuff. And that's how you build the actual network of just general awareness for what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like a Ferrari dealership. You know, a lot yeah. of people go in a Ferrari dealership. I've done it and I've like, you know, told the guy, Hey, I'm here to buy a Ferrari. And he's like, no, you're not. You know, the people <laughs> who buy Ferraris just walk in here and point at the car. So, you know, yeah, some people just want to look. Um, and that's why, you know, all the details of the startups are private. Uh, you don't know the company name unless the founder gives you access, but, but yeah, there's a lot of window shoppers and the, the premium buyer program helps kind of, you know, separate those two groups, the people that are serious and the people that are just kind of looking around, so to speak. So the other side of this is, I, I, I mean, maybe we can spend some time on the buyers, but to me, what's super interesting is the founders that want to sell. And you've been in that boat having sold uh, two businesses yourself, but you know, th there's a, there's a belief, particularly if you're not on some sort of like obligation, cause you took a venture funding and you're supposed to be on some sort of ramp track to, to uh, have an exit. It's always been at least positioned to me as, Hey, if I've got my own uh, SaaS that, you know, I more or less have full equity on and, you know, I've, I've built it to, you know, have a sufficient cash flow and team and whatever. That's kind of the dream. It should be cash flowing. It should be, you know, ha have solid margins and, and whatnot. Like what type of characters in that price range tend to be looking to sell? 
I see pretty much everything and everything. So some are, you know, venture back businesses that realize they're not going to reach escape velocity or they're not going to hit the growth milestones to hit their next fundraise. And so they need to sell the business or they just want to get out of the business. They, they want to build a billion dollar company and it's becoming apparent this isn't a billion dollar opportunity. And that's still a great business. It's just, it's very different building a startup and building a business. And what's interesting is, you know, building a business isn't sexy, you know, and what I mean by a a business is, you know, it's profitable. You're not focused on investors. You're really focused on creating something that's sustainable. You own the majority of it. A startup is really, you know, kind of binary. Like you're either, you know, going to see a huge exit or go down swinging. And so, you know, the best businesses on MicroCard are probably, you know, a little bit in the middle where they're, you know, profitable SaaS companies, they have the potential to reach, say, you know, go from one to 10 million in revenue or something like that. But they're not like unicorns or anything like that. They're not the next, you know, I hate using Google and Facebook over and over and over, but those companies always come to mind. But it's a mixture of of everything. There's small SaaS applications. There's Shopify applications making anywhere from, you know, a thousand to 500,000 in revenue a year. There's venture-backed businesses that are just looking for soft landings. There's, I've also started listing e-commerce companies and direct-to-consumer companies. I've helped marketplaces sell. There's a clubhouse competitor on there right now. (laughs) Yeah. And then interesting enough, I posted, um, Someone had like a Instagram account with 2 million followers, just full of dog pictures. And I was like, is this for real? And I talked to the, the guy who owned it. And long story short, I listed that. It sold within 24 hours. Um, I've sold companies from, you know, Y Combinator, from Techstars, from 500 Startups. So it's it's a good mix of everything. And I think it's important to understand that not every business succeeds and um, and that's okay. And exiting for one, two, even a couple hundred thousand dollars is a massive win. But unfortunately, in kind of our you know tech community or you know mainstream press, those sort of outcomes aren't really serious. But that's like life changing stuff right there. Um, even though it might not you know hit the headlines of TechCrunch or whatever. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your experience having gone through those types of acquisitions. The first was business apps. Um, it was, you know, allowing other entities to build mobile apps and, and you were kind of building, that was a SaaS solution. You're kind of building the underlying infrastructure to help them do that easily. Yeah. So that, I, I always say that was a distribution company more than a technology company. And the reason I say that is it was a do-yourself app builder for small and medium-sized businesses, but we didn't sell to small and medium-sized businesses. What we'd do is we would white label the software and then we'd sell that to web agencies who had a hundred small business customers where they could just use our software, put their branding on it, set their own pricing, and then build hundreds of applications. And then we just focus on building the technology for them to build um, these mobile apps for their customers. And it was a crazy time too. It was like the iPhone just came out. Everyone was trying to figure out how to build a mobile app. A custom mobile app at that time was like 50 grand because it was a new technology that very few engineers knew how to to develop. And so we just made that simple, easier, faster, cheaper for businesses where normally they wouldn't be able to build a mobile app like that. 
But yeah, the business model was we sold into mainly web agencies, um, partnered with some public companies and some are some other really large companies that worked with small businesses. And we would just focus on the app building technology. And then we essentially had like a 5,000 person sales team across the world. We were in like 40 different countries. It translated the app in like 30 different languages. We ended up making more mobile apps than any other company in the world. I, don't, I can't prove that, but I, I, I talked to an app reviewer one time and he told us that um, we were putting in basically one in every 20 apps. So 5% of the total apps in the app store were being created by, by business apps. Um, so that, that was my first company and I sold that in uh, 2018. I started in college and only raised um, about 100,000. That's bananas. And you got it to over 10 million in annual revenue. I did. And so like, can, can you take us the psychology of, of that exit? Because that was, you know, it, it seems like you, you reached a point where, hey, I can sell this now and have genuinely life-changing money. And because I'm not under any sort of obligation from investors, I don't know exactly the, the terms of the 100K investment, but you had the option to do that and you were just kind of ready for the next thing. Or what was the psychology there? Yeah, I can tell you what it was like when, so I did, um, you know, an all cash deal. So there was no earn out, there was no staggered payments or anything like that. So I remember when the wire hit, I actually got really scared. I thought um, it's it, it just life changing, like, like, oh my gosh, because it's, it's an event that you work towards, you know, for eight years. And I built that business with the goal of selling it. It wasn't a business I was going to cash flow and have a profitable business because I had investors. So I have a fiduciary duty to show them a return on their investment. And the best way to do that is through an exit or buying them out. But in this case, I was focusing on an exit. And yeah, that event happened. I got lucky, super fortunate. Um, but yeah, it was, it's definitely a moment that, I mean, you know, I have like the date written down as uh, March 24th and uh, it, it was, it was pretty meaningful. I mean, it changed my life forever and it's allowed me to, go on and start other businesses. But I think, you know, in, in a way I kind of miss it. I, it was so much fun. I mean, I was 22, 23, 24 running like a hundred person company. I had zero experience. I'm a non-technical founder. My previous job was at Sears. I didn't raise a bunch of venture capital, even though I met with a bunch of VCs um, as we were growing. Um, so it was, it was just an interesting, surreal journey. Yeah. So I'm three years into the company that I'm building and it's, it's an agency slash media company at this point in time. We sell, we either sell ads on media or we're, you know, doing different services for our clients. And what's hard for me to wrap my head around and you know, I, I basically spend all my, if, if I'm doing dishes, if I'm in transit anywhere, I'm listening to different podcasts with different investors and entrepreneurs talking about everything. And I heard this ridiculous stat that somewhere around 50% of entrepreneurs post selling their company regret it or have, or have regrets about the process generally. And, and so it makes sense when I see like that framework of, you know, founders first, whenever the, we're, we're trying to facilitate these deals, that makes a ton of sense, but it is even fascinating. Like the way you mentioned that in, in describing the psychology of like, you do kind of miss it. And it was a kind of special experience with that company that you were building. And it's, it's, it, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, that happens and then you're just literally right onto the next one, right on the next one after that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of founders go through that. I've talked to, you know, a few friends with exits that 
yeah, you sell the company and you, you have this team that like, you just love working with. And it just, it depends on the terms of like your deal. Like, is there earn out? Is it going to be a period of time? Um, but mine was quick. Um, and so, you know, we have this family like culture and, you know, it was almost like graduating college where everyone was super happy. It was a great outcome all around. And, but it was like the end of a chapter. So, you know, it, I kept telling the team like, Hey, this isn't goodbye. It's just, you know, see you around. And so, yeah, it definitely, you look back and you just think, you know, that was a hell of a ride, but you know, uh, on the flip note, I, I see entrepreneurs holding on to businesses too long as well. And that can be detrimental to your career. If you have something of value and you have an opportunity to secure financial stability for the rest of your life, I highly recommend it. I have absolutely zero regrets. The only thing I miss is, you know, working with my team and, you know, but I've been able to move on and meet other awesome individuals and build other awesome teams. So, you know, it's just, I like to think of my career as just chapters. That was a, an amazing chapter. Um, I've had a few after that. I'm in a new one now. But, you know, when you build a company and you exit it, you just, you're now able to go and do something new with so much more experience than you had before. When I started business apps, I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely no idea. Like we were doing, we were updating code on like the production server. We would like push bugs live and like, you know, just stuff that I, I wouldn't do now because I, I have gone through some painful mistakes. I've made more mistakes than things I've done right. So, yeah, I mean, it's like a double-edged sword. You can hold on to the business, but, you know, with technology companies, you're just going to get out innovated. So you're not going to hand this down to your kid or something like that. Um, someone else is going to think of a better, faster, cheaper way of doing whatever you're doing. So, you know, there's kind of like the technology adoption curve. You know, you want to make sure you you sell when you feel like you've taken the business as far as you can go. And that's where I was. And that's when I sold. So no regrets, but looking back, yeah, I, it was so much fun. So let me ask that because because the next company, you know, so business apps, it, it was a little over eight years from inception to the eventual sale. Your next one, Altcoin.io turned around really quickly um, in less than two years from, from at least from trust and LinkedIn from inception to sale. And you talk about all that experience that you have, you've made all these mistakes. You're coming with like a, a tighter, you know, you're not, you're not someone with like a huge binder in your playbook. You're like, okay, these are the, the 15 plays that work. And like, this is what I'm going to, you know, hang my hat on. But I have to imagine the other side of it too, is just the confidence. Like, like in the first year of starting Piper, I was like, there was just genuine, like, I don't know if this will will work. And it, and the stakes felt so high because I had never made something work before. Right. Imagine after that, you have both financial security, but also the security of like, Hey, I've done it. And maybe that's not a license to get overconfident, but it's a license to be more confident that I can really create something valuable. Yeah. So you're reading it wrong. Um, and I'll I'll tell you why. So Allcoin was um, a completely different industry. And once again, I had no idea what I was doing um, because it was a blockchain company. And, you know, I, I like to be uncomfortable. I like to learn. I like to kind of do startups on like hard mode, if that makes sense. I mean, I could probably build different companies like, you know, maybe something similar to business apps where I have like deep domain knowledge, but I love to learn. I love to kind of be like, how are we going to figure this out? Like, so with Allcoin, what we were building was a decentralized cryptocurrency trading exchange 
but we were building it with a framework called Plasma, which increases the transaction time for trading tokens on the Ethereum blockchain. Kind of confusing, uh, super, super complicated technical project. So being a non-technical founder, I mean, that just wrapping my head around that was, was difficult. But yeah, that one was a little different. The plays that I ran um, a little bit earlier that I think benefited me was I mapped out all the sh- potential strategic buyers. And so once we got to a point where, you know, we felt we had built something of value and that, you know, this is, this is a sellable asset. Um, we already had built relationships with everyone that could potentially be interested in buying the company. And then that's why it was such a quick acquisition is um, from day one, I uh, had meetings with everyone. It was basically like, think I built, I'd started the company as an opportunity, seeing it like a puzzle piece, like this puzzle piece would fit really well into a larger cryptocurrency company or crypto holding company. And so we built basically a core trading engine and, and that's what we sold. So would you say that you've started micro acquire similarly? Like you, you kind of said at the beginning, like you didn't even know if it would necessarily work or if there'd be that appetite for it. But is, is this something where the intention is like, I already kind of know who would want something like this or what was the, the framework there? I think what I always look for is I always look for trends. So I look for what, is not obvious today that will become obvious over time. So with business apps, that was, to me, it was extremely obvious, extremely obvious that every business is going to want a way to connect with their customers where they are. And that's on their mobile phones, um, similar to their, you know, larger competitors, like a, a small coffee shop is going to want to build the same type of app as Starbucks, except they don't have 5 million bucks. So that one was obvious to me, like, you know, everyone's going to have one of these mobile phones in their pocket. So I made a bet on that early um, with Allcoin, you know, I, I, I think I was a little too early on that one. Um, I think blockchain development and just the use cases that we're going to see with blockchain are going to get really interesting over the next few years. But right now developing something in blockchain right now kind of feels like working with the internet in 2000. So you know, the user experience is lacking in a big way. So for mainstream adoption to kind of catch up, um, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and so we focus on that a lot. Um, but I, I kind of realized it was going to take a while for this to really become a big business. And so that's why it made sense to sell that one so early. Um, with MicroAcquire, again, the bet I was making was, you know, there's a lot of startup founders and they have no idea how an acquisition works. This market is controlled by, you know, investment bankers and brokers that favor buyers over the founders. And so I wanted to flip that market on its head, remove the middleman and just make a bet that, you know, there's a lot of startups that are never going to get past 5 million in revenue. And they're going to want an easy way to create these relationships with buyers without the typical headaches you see today. And to put a pause really quickly on the idea that, you know, it favored the buyers over the founders. A big reason for that is the buyers are the repeat customer. That, so that's who the middleman kind of tailors the experience towards as opposed to the one-off sale of founders. Is that right? Well, so if you're a broker or an investment banker, you're paid a big commission if the deal closes. So there's a lot of discussion behind the scenes of hey, I talked to the founder and I'm pretty sure you can get him at this price and stuff like that. I mean, there's 
there's a definite place for investment bankers. I use an investment bank to sell business apps. Um, you know, if the business is, you know, if you're really, you know, dealing with, you know, eight figures and above investment banks and a professional mini advisor, I highly recommend. And there's some great brokers as well, but you know, you get a prospectus from a broker and the market's growing, everything's great. So you almost have to like reverse due diligence what they're saying. Like everything is so good, you got to figure out what's wrong with it. So it's yeah. a different type of due diligence. And on microfire, just you connect like you, you connect directly with the founder and you're able to ask questions directly without kind of a coach sort of, you know, um, set of answers, um, you know, from someone in the middle. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, when you're, you got to think of incentives, incentives drive, you know, human behavior essentially. And when you're incentivized to sell a business, you don't, I mean, if it sells for, let's say 1.5 million, as opposed to, you know, 1.8 million, like as a, as a broker, you're probably okay with that. Um, but that's a significant difference for a founder because you just want to get the deal closed and move on to the next one. But again, I mean, brokers and bankers, definitely have their spot but i i just felt there there could be a more efficient process here so it's clear that the solution works you're you're facilitating transactions and at the very least the buyer they're qualified buyers so you got we you shared that um 240,000 in annual revenue year 1 You've got more than 30,000 buyers, uh, not all paying, but the like window shoppers like me included. And then this is still a one-man band. Like there's not a, a team built around it. it. Yeah. It's just, again, I like to play startups on, on, on hard mode. I, I clearly probably, you know, this is another thing that I'm doing wrong is I'm currently hiring. So, you know, don't, don't worry about me. I'm going to get my time back. But yeah, right now I'm kind of doing everything. I do all the support. I write all the newsletters. I, if you go on live chat, you're talking to me. If you submit your startup, and I think that component will probably always stay just because I truly believe that, you know, when you build a brand and you're able to, you know, involve the founder, um, there's just something special that happens and you build such amazing customer loyalty and customer affinity. And so I did that at business apps. If you look at like our G2 reviews and just search like CEO, you'll see a ton of people mentioning like Andrew, like I would do support emails even at business apps, even when we had like a big support team, I take sales calls all the time. Um, so I really enjoy, you know, working closely with whatever customer I'm serving, but, but yeah, man, it's uh, I mean, candidly, I have a, a, an agency and development team that I hired for the, development of the marketplace. I have some contractors that help me with, you know, SEO, Facebook ads, um, you know, little things, but the overall operations, yeah, it's, it's me basically, you know, 5am to 8pm. And, and so that's also an informed choice because you've run that hundred person team of business apps and not that you could be a hundred on that number, but you could be hiring as opposed to using, using agencies. What's the learning there that's, you know, led you to say, this is the route as opposed to a route I've taken in the past? I think it's important before you hire anybody to really, really understand the role and how to optimize the processes for that role. So the amount of work I do with MicroQuire, like it, it would take five people, like, but I built really, really streamlined processes through, you know, templated responses to common questions or just streamlining 
onboarding startups, just every part of the business. I look for ways to just cut down time to, cause that also builds a better user experience. And then when I start to deeply understand, you know, what the best way is for this role. So the best example I can, I can give now that's, that's relevant is, you know, onboarding startups. So I have a, a very detailed process of how that goes, um, what information is required, how to set up the profiles, which startups um, are a viable fit for micro require. And so now that I can hand over to someone, which I'm currently um, working on now. I, I've hired two different uh, team members. And literally after this call, I have training with, uh, with this after this podcast, excuse me, I'm training with um, someone. So uh, just learning the, the ins and outs of your industry and the processes and just what you need out of whoever you hire, I think is key. And, and that can be applied to bigger roles too. Like if you're in B2B SaaS, you know, I'm a firm believer that the founder should be doing sales to, you know, a certain point. So they deeply understand the sales process. They deeply understand their customer. They have their, you know, ICP nailed down, um, you know, setting the initial brand. Like what is the company? Is it a fun brand? Is it a humorous brand? Is it a serious brand? That's a reflection of the founder. And so, you know, I think it's a mistake sometimes in founders, like they'll have an idea, they raise money. Next thing you know, you got a VP of sales, VP of marketing, all these smart people kind of sitting in the room. I think you should, you know, kind of, you know, build the business out a little bit more and really have yourself in the trenches. And because it allows you to say, you know, when you really start to build out your team, you know, there's no job that you've, you haven't done in the business. And that is just huge there. And, and if you make it true, um, it resonates with your team. Like I've done the job you're doing. I know how to do it. I can help you do it. And it just builds a, a culture of just, you know, leading from the front. And so, yeah, that's kind of why I'm wearing all the, all the hats right now. So in terms of growth though, that's one of the jobs you've clearly obviously had your finger on the pulse of to get that many people on the platform in a year, you referenced Facebook ads, you referenced SEO. Is that, is that what you would like, can you give a breakdown of how much you think those different elements contributed to the, the growth of the platform? Um, candidly, I'm making a small mistake where I, I need to button up my attribution in terms of like where, like okay. right now I'm in a situation where everything's working and I'm just not <laughs> touching anything. So I can see like, you know, where users are coming from, but I see a lot of signups from product hunt, you know, indie hacker, uh, beta list, uh, tons on socials, tons from LinkedIn and Twitter, um, and a lot of just referrals too, you know, just being able to speak to, you know, buyers and seeing this word of mouth flywheel start to take place is, is pretty interesting, but um, that's on my to-do list is kind of button down exact attribution on where exactly are my customers coming from right now. I just have like scattered marketing campaigns. I do a lot of stuff on social. Um, I talk to a lot of buyers and I kind of let them know, like, if you run into a startup and you think microcard could be a fit, I'd love to be introduced. So I'd say the main drivers is word of mouth. I think that's been, if I pull up Google analytics, the direct traffic is um, probably 70% and then maybe 15% referral and then 10 on on organic and then five on social, if I'm guessing. Fascinating. Yeah. Cause it's, it's impressive. Like that's, you know, the what's what, what's the trope it's you know the 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 first time founder worries about the product 
and the second time founder worries about the distribution. And I'm, I, I can see that clearly, but it's very clear that like, if you get the distribution and then you're able to populate the people on the platform, you know, even if the, the product's not quite right and there's stuff that needs to be added or iterated on, you're going to get the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And, and the tip I give to other founders too, and just kind of like the playbook that I'm running and, you know, it's, it's definitely a scrappy move, but um, I like a shotgun approach at first where you just start doing a bunch of stuff, like everything all at once, um, ads, um, you know, display ads, Facebook ads, um, social media posts, anything you think of that could possibly reach customers and then start to really figure out which ones of those to focus on most. And then just double down on like two and three and get really, really focused. Makes sense. Well, Andrew, this has been great. I appreciate you sharing so much of uh, what you're working on with me. Before we aim towards uh, asking the last two questions that we always do, is there anything else you're hoping to share that I just didn't give you a chance to? Uh, no, it's been a ton of fun, man. I uh, appreciate you having me on. And um, what else can I share? I passed, uh, as we've been talking, there's been two customers that signed up. So I think I passed uh, 250000 in annual recruiting revenue on this podcast, which is kind of cool. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we'll have to have you on after that number is way, way bigger to celebrate and teach us more about what you learned. I'm into it. I'll do it. For folks that want to check it out, uh, you know, join the 30,000 other uh, buyers looking at businesses or potentially sell their own company. What digital coordinates should we provide people if they want to learn more? Uh, just go to microacquire.com or follow me, A. Gazdecki on Twitter. Um, also add me on LinkedIn or just shoot me an email, andrew at microacquire.com. Right on. We're going to link all that in the show notes for this episode. You can find it in the podcast app where you're listening to this or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Andrew, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Actionable? Uh, I would say one thing that's always been really helpful for me is journaling and writing down your goals. It's just really, I have a whiteboard right here that has, um, you know, my goals on it personally and professionally. And I walk in this office every morning and that's the first thing I see. And then, you know, think about journaling. And when I say journaling, I don't mean, you know, write about like your life story every single day, but uh, once a month, do bullet points of, you know, what happened, the summary, where do you think you're going to be in 30 days and turn that into a book. Um, that's exactly what I literally did. I journaled my entire experience through through business apps and now I'm turning that into a book but it, it just it helps you so much when you're having a bad month and you look at you know if I read a post from December it says I'm launching microquire I don't even know if it's going to work and I read that now it puts everything into perspective like this is awesome enjoy the moment enjoy the journey so long story short uh, write your goals down and um, you know maybe keep a monthly journal yeah. I, uh, I have a good friend who is an investor and he was talking about how his recommendation was to journal during like the beginning of the pandemic. So I was like texting, I was like calling him cause he had kind of, you know, just been a little bit earlier to the expectation, like, Hey, this is gonna be a big deal before other people were saying that. And he was saying, just take a journal of like all the things you're feeling right now, because it is a very, you know, very scary, very sad time, but also very like special in the sense out of the ordinary time so that you can look back on how you were even just dealing with those new stimulus. And, and, and once you have some space from it, be able to process it better. Cause it's hard to, it's hard to even remember, like it's hard to even look back if you didn't have an asset like that and be like, I don't even really, 
I could make something up what I was feeling, but I don't really know. Yeah. I think, I think the takeaway I have there is just um, when you write stuff down like that, you know, March was really scary. And then when you look back, you know, it gives you just a little bit of hope and confidence. Like everything tends to work out most of the time. So, you know, definitely documenting like the hard times. And then when the good times are good, it just, it makes you just feel, it puts it in a perspective, just how lucky you are. Um, and so I'm, I'm a huge fan of journaling. So I recommend it. Facts. Well, that's a beautiful note to wrap up on. Andrew, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah. Aaron, thanks for having me. We just went deep with Andrew Gazdecki. Hope you're out there. It was a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. If you enjoyed this, then you will also enjoy our past conversation with Ryan Culp. Ryan Culp is the founder of Fork Equity and the creator of an online course about buying small companies. He has done it himself, building a more than $5 million portfolio of SaaS companies and has learned a lot along the way. If this is something that you are interested, then you can definitely go deeper with that episode and make sure that you hit subscribe because we have a bunch of fantastic interviews coming very soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.